Our scripture reading this morning will be found in Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. If you're not familiar with scripture, there should be a Bible in front of you. And you can find this text on page 1028. 1028. Revelation chapter 1. As we read this text, I just want you to uh, kind of allow yourself to go there. Um, God gives the Apostle John a vision of the heavenly Christ. Uh, And that's what we're going to read right now. The Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we are humbled by the glorified risen Savior. We pray as we seek your truth and seek the the word that you have given to us this morning and as Pastor Toby comes to preach this text that we would be compelled that we would be convicted and exhorted and encouraged by the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ give us grace to to have ears to hear and mind to understand your word this morning in Jesus name amen For those who have been praying for uh, Doug Waltz, put that out. The last that I had heard, he was on a plane to Houston. So he got on a plane, which is a good thing. He's very ill, and Lord willing, in Houston there will be some uh, help there. I don't know anything other than that. Is that everything that we know, Kurt, right now? Okay. Um, Also, thank you 
for those of you who uh, spent time this weekend praying for the elders as we went away. It was a fruitful and profitable time of study and prayer and discussion, and uh, I thank God uh, for those men uh, and for the gift uh, that he has given to this church in those men. And so thank you for praying for us. Um, as a Christian, I wonder what you would say that you need most when non-Christian friends ridicule. What is it that you think that you need most when co-workers take jabs at your faith? What is it that you need most when, even within your own family, it feels like you're on the outside looking in? What does our church need in order to swim against the moral current of our society and not drown in its values? A moral current that exalts the autonomy of self to such a degree that the denial of God's ordained work in the realms of gender and sexuality, that the denial of God's plan is celebrated as wonderful progress. A moral current in which in the year 2017, 881,000 babies were legally murdered in the wombs of their mother. And in this state, 7,800 of them. What do we need most in order to swim against a current which exalts self and denies any authority outside myself? What do we need when that society comes and continues to ridicule, continues to dismiss, continues to ostracize, continues to up the ante of oppression and persecution and outcast? What do we need to refuse to compromise in the face of such things? What do we need to avoid bending to society's pressure to conform? What do we need if we're to faithfully endure hardship and keep shining the light of Christ in our community? The answer lies in our text. Today we begin a new series of sermons focusing mainly on letters that were sent from the Lord Jesus to seven churches in Asia Minor, this first part of uh, Revelation. And these seven churches in Asia Minor were part of a culture in which they were hated, in which they were oppressed, in which they endured hardship. And quite frankly, they need hope. They need someone who's going to lift their chin. They need someone who's going to give them the spiritual boost. And the book of Revelation is sent to provide just that, to set the hardship of their present life in its proper context of eternity so that they'll persevere, so that they'll endure. And brothers and sisters in Christ, it is for us today so that we will endure. There's plenty of curiosity about the book of Revelation, isn't there? There is no shortage of conferences that you could go to. No shortage of charts that you could look at. But John Stott wisely notes this. John's desire in writing is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future, but to stimulate our faithfulness in the present. And the first thing we need in order to stimulate faithfulness in the present, in the face of hardship, is quite frankly a good look at the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the whole thing starts. And He will stay in focus the whole time. Indeed, our takeaway from these verses is this, that every church needs a glorious vision of Jesus to faithfully endure hardship. Every church and you can just take that right down to the individual level. Every Christian needs a glorious vision of Jesus to, in faith, to faithfully endure 
hardship. So that's all we're going to think about today. This vision. But first, before we get to the vision, let's think about the hardship. Okay, let's think about the hardship. We know from our study of history and from other letters in the New Testament that Christians were hated for many reasons. Politically, they are hated because they will not bow to Caesar as their ultimate authority. They proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Religiously, Christians were often accused of being atheists because they would dismiss this whole host of idols that everybody is worshiping in order to worship this invisible God. There was no idol to worship. Socially, they were hated because they seem to just completely dismiss the Roman aristocracy. Because what the, what the Christian taught is what the New Testament teaches, which is that every person who is in Christ has an equal standing before God. That there is no hierarchy of the salvation. Even economically, you remember uh, Acts chapter 18. The idol craftsmen start a riot because Paul is bad for business. He is preaching that people need to turn from idols and begin to worship the one true and living God, and their business is suffering for it. Even morally, Christians are not no longer joining into the pagan amusements that they once did. They are set apart unto a different kind of life. And for all of these reasons, and probably you can make a, I mean, who knows? There are a variety of reasons. Jesus just said, the world will hate you because they hated me first. That's all we really need to know. But it's interesting that there's a whole host of reasons why Christians would have been hated. But they're not alone in this. And John says as much, doesn't he, in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John is their partner in tribulation, their partner in the kingdom, their partner in the patient endurance that is in Jesus. He shares the hatred of the world. He knows the hardship they face. He's, fa he's facing it himself. He's exiled to Patmos, which was one of a series of islands where uh, people would be exiled, either for political or for criminal reasons. Now, in the Roman society at this point, Christianity is considered an illegal sect. It had been separated from Judaism. So most likely, John is here as a very old man, as a criminal, now exiled. He's doing hard labor in a hard place under the watchful whip of a Roman soldier. He shares, he's their partner in tribulation. But he's also a partner in the kingdom. He's part of the kingdom. He belongs to King Jesus too. In fact, it's because they are partners in the kingdom that they're partners in this tribulation is because they've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And in the world, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is seen as the enemy. Because it belongs to Jesus. He's their partner in this hardship. He's their partner in the kingdom. He's their partner in patient endurance. This is what they seek to do as they are under this tribulation. They must have, it uh, refers to a kind of inward fortitude that strengthens one to withstand opposition. That's what he means by patient endurance. As we go forward in the letters, we'll find that, that Ephesus and Thyatira and Philadelphia are all commended because they are patiently enduring. As you keep reading the book of Revelation, you'll see a couple of different times, I think it's chapter 13 and chapter 14, where there's this clear statement, everything comes to a stop, and John says, this is a call to endurance. The hardship is real, and the hardship, they don't call it an easy ship. It's a hardship. They call it that for a reason, because it's hard. And when your friends outcast you, and when your family ostracizes you, and when your colleagues ignore you, and when your boss passes over you because of your love for Jesus, 
It can be quite painful. But here's the sweet truth that that one verse reminds us of before we go on. You're not alone. You're not the only one walking the road of ostracism. You're not the only one walking the road of exile. We are all in it together. Our roads of hardship may look quite different. It may be coming from different people. It may seem to be for different reasons. There may be various levels of difficulty that we face in one environment or another. But dear brother, dear sister, we are all in it together. We all walk that road. And, that, and John is writing and he identifies with them because he's not writing as like an expert consultant that's on the outside. He's writing as a co-sufferer who's on the inside. And he's going to write. And, dear, and, and quite honestly, this is why this is so necessary. This is why the church is so good and so necessary. It's one of many reasons. Because just as John is writing to encourage their faithfulness, we must encourage one another. We must come together and bear the burdens of one another and speak to one another and point one another to a more glorious vision of Jesus that will keep us going when the hardship increases. We need to be reminded over and over and over and over and over again of the eternal backdrop against which these temporal things are playing out. We need to be reminded that these are light and momentary afflictions that are working together to achieve an eternal weight of glory. We need to be reminded that God is conforming us to the image of His dear Son. We need to be reminded that history belongs to Him and not to us and not to the people who seem to be controlling every move we make by their ostracism and their, and their, uh, their ridicule and by cutting us out. And what will encourage us to faithfully endure hardship, you ask? How will we encourage one another? Well, I've already said it, but the answer is John's vision of Jesus. It's a glorious vision, isn't it? You can almost not read it slowly enough to really take it in. And that's what we want to look at. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time is looking at this vision. Because, I, I mean, really, all I had to say was hardship, and you didn't need me to explain anything, did I? You know all about it, don't you? There's some things you just don't need a lot of explanation for. Life's hard as a Christian, Duh. But what do we need? We need a vision of Jesus. We need a glorious vision of Jesus to endure faithfully. So verses 10 and 11, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists the seven churches. Throughout this book, John is given heavenly visions. And this first one is a glorious vision of the risen Christ. And it reveals, just in reading it, it gives us five wonderful, hope-giving, soul-strengthening truths that help us to endure hardship. The first goes straight to the identity of Jesus. We have to remember who we're talking
of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. The references to Daniel 7 actually just continue. A few verses before 13 and 14, we read this. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. This Son of Man, the risen Christ, His hair is white like white wool. The Ancient of Days, the hair of His head is like pure wool. In other words, Jesus is God. And it's underlined as Jesus speaks to uh, John after this vision. He says in verse 17, Fear not, I am the first and the last. This is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, where God says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. That language of the first and the last means He is before all things, and when, when every, anything and everything is gone, He remains. He is it. He is the first and He is the last. He is the everything. And then He says, I am the living one. And you might think, well, of course He's the living one. He, he died on the cross and then He was raised from the dead. But actually, that's not what He's saying yet. He will say, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's the phrase that refers to His death and resurrection and we'll get to that. But he says, I am the living one. Do you know who the living one is in the Bible? God. He is, according to Jeremiah chapter 10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. When Paul preaches the gospel and he's commending the Thessalonians and he's testifying to the grace of God in their lives and, and he, he says that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. All the idols, they, they, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have hands, but they can't touch anything. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They are dead. They are worthless. There is only one living one. And that is God Himself. So you see, Jesus is both truly and fully human and truly and fully God. Now, if your mind is spinning, if it seems as if smoke could come out your ears at any moment now to think of any being in that way, well, join the club. However, while our finite minds cannot fully grasp this glorious truth, it doesn't make it untrue. The Bible teaches it. And we are called on to believe it, that Jesus is both the glorious and eternal God and a human being. He is God in the flesh. He is the Word made flesh. And it had to be this way. As God, He is the sinless Savior who has come to rescue us. And as a human being, He is the substitutional sacrifice for our sin. Only a human being can substitute for a human being. And only God is sinless, and only God, according to the Old Testament, is Savior. Now that would just be enough, wouldn't it? That the one that you believe, the one that you trust, the one that you follow, the one that you pray to, the one that you worship, the, the one in whose hands lie your eternity is the glorious God-man. That's good, isn't it? This is, this is no ordinary Jesus. This is why the low views of Jesus that try to domesticate Him must be done away with. Yes, He is a friend that sticks closer to a brother, but He is a friend like no other because He is God who is our friend. And that is mind-boggling. 
And this actually just leads us right into the next truth, which is that Jesus is our mediator. If you look at verse 13, he says, In the midst of the lampstands, which picture the church, uh, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This ro- a robe uh, would be something that would be common for kings to wear or for prophets to wear. But this combination, this combination of the robe and the sash, points us to identifying Jesus as a priest. As a, a priest mediates between God and man. The priests in the Old Testament... Uh, made the sacrifices on behalf of men before God. He mediated. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus is our high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4, the Scripture says, We have a high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And then in chapter 7, we read verses 26 to 28, It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He is the perfect, final, eternal high priest. And as high priest, he didn't take some other animal up and offer it. He took himself up and offered himself up as our offering. He mediates between man and God, and he himself satisfies the wrath of God in his death so that we can be forgiven of sin and made right with God. It's wonderful. People often talk about, I mean, I remember the story of a famous athlete just a few years ago who got caught in all kinds of trouble, and he talked about the fact that he was going to find a way to atone for what he had done. And it's simply not uncommon for people to talk about making up for what they did. They just want a blank slate so they can write a new story. But friend, none of us can atone for our own sin. None of us can write a story that's acceptable to God in our lives. We cannot atone for our own sin, but Jesus Christ, our high priest, has made atonement once for all for sin. So that all who come to Him, all who turn to Him in faith, that atonement is their atonement. It atones for their sin. They are forgiven of their sin. Atonement at one. It brings them back. It reconciles that one to God in a right relationship that is unbroken forever. And the question you have to ask yourself is, is that the way that you are relating to God? Are you seeking to atone for your own sin? Are you seeking just to do better than the day before? Are you seeking to write a better story? Are you seeking just another second chance? Or are you casting out all of those foolish efforts which the Bible says are futile? And are you casting yourself on the mercy and goodness and the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ for you? Because that's the only way you'll be rightly related to God is by trusting in Jesus. And if you will turn to Him today, right now, before we ever finish the sermon, right now, just stop, just pay attention to Jesus, look to Jesus, call on Him in your heart, confess your sin, turn to Him by faith, and be saved. There's no other way. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ, the High Priest. Because of Him, because of His death, the veil that in the temple tore, and we are now given access to God. That's a glorious truth. All pictured in a robe and a sash. Friends, this is why, just as a side note, you have to know your Old Testament. Otherwise, you think this is a, just a 
a, a side comment that John's making about what the risen Christ is wearing. No, these, these garments speak of one who is our mediator. There is only one God and there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The next thing we see about Jesus is that Jesus is with His churches. Verse 13, In the midst of the lampstands. The lampstands represent the seven churches. He is with His church. He had promised after He was raised from the dead, I am with you always. And this picture is a reminder of that truth that, dear friend, as we are gathering here in His name, as His people, to worship Him, to proclaim His Word, Jesus is with us right now. He is with us. The Spirit of Christ moves among us. He is with us. And in this text, He is with us, first of all, to speak. He's with us to speak. That's actually what the next couple of chapters are going to be. Is Jesus speaking in these letters to the churches? By the Spirit of God, the Word of God comes to the people of God. But He's not just with us to speak. He's with us to judge. As the head of the church, Jesus has authority to evaluate everything about His church. In the letters that are to come, He will both commend and correct. The final evaluation lies in His hands. You go home today, you say, how do you think things are going at church? Well, there might be usefulness to that uh, conversation. But do you know who has the last word? The Lord Jesus Christ does. And how do we know what Jesus thinks about what's going on at our church? He doesn't communicate in some metaphysical way where he's just like something's going to unroll and tell us how we're doing, like a scorecard or something. He tells us in his word what the church looks like. And as we look at the church and then we look at the word and we look at how we're supposed to live with one another, how we're supposed to worship, how we're supposed to love, how we're supposed to witness, how we're supposed to minister to one another, then we see what Jesus says of us. He's with us to speak, He's with us to judge, and He's with us to rule, quite frankly. Now, we'll look at these, uh, these angels that are spoken of in more detail next week. But right now, what I want you to see as significant is this. Jesus holds them in His right hand. The hand of authority. The hand of power. And that is precisely who Jesus is to the church. He is our King. He is our head. He rules and reigns. He speaks through these letters and... Brothers and sisters, he expects to be obeyed. He is not simply Savior. He is Lord. And when the Lord speaks, the Lord's people must respond in faith and obedience. And Jesus does these things today through His Word, so that as we open the Bible and as we read it and as we hear it explained and as we apply it, Jesus speaks to us. He commends. He corrects. He, and what we hear from Him, we must obey. So we must be very quick to understand that what we're doing right now, what I'm doing right now, what other godly men seek to do right, at this moment in our service when our other elders stand to preach, this is not merely an intellectual exercise. It is not entertainment. It is not motivational speech. It is a divine communication. It is by God's Spirit that His Word comes through a human being to be given to His people. This is why, by the way, it matters so much that we strive and we fight and we work and we pray and we plead for the meaning of the Bible to be right every time we teach, every time we preach. Why? Because, the, to use great grammar, the writer we are with the Word, the clearer the voice of Jesus is. We don't, of all of the voices that are screaming for our attention in our world, the voice we need is the voice of Jesus. The voice you need is the voice of Jesus. 
That's why it matters what happens in your growth groups, by the way. That's why what does it mean is of eternal value. And what does it mean, in my opinion, is of, in the end, no value. What was meant when this was written? Because what was meant when this was written is what God intended for us to know and to hear and to obey. And it makes, it, just reflecting on this this week and even last night, this makes me tremble to stand here. And every other man that stands here should tremble in that way. To dare say, thus says the Lord. It should bring with it a measure of sobriety and seriousness as much as it gives us joy. Jesus is with his churches. Next, Jesus strikes fear in the heart. Did you notice that? Verses 14 to 17. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This imagery is staggering. His hair is pure white. His eyes are a flame of fire able to search and see everything in the fire of His own judgment. Nothing is hidden from His sight, Hebrews 4. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Strength and stability are pictured in the feet of burnished bronze. His voice is like the roar of many waters. Have you ever been there? Have you ever stood in the ocean and the waves are so loud you can't hear the person talking that's 10 feet away from you? The, the sound of the waves crashing drowns out everything. Parents, have you ever had your child like 20 feet away from you on the beach and you yell and you yell but they cannot hear you because the waves are so loud? It is an over whelming decibel level that is coming at him and it's pounding and it's pounding and it's pounding just like Ezekiel 43 verse 2 the glory of the Lord comes and then it's approaching it was like the sound of many waters the roar of many waters not only is his voice booming it's sharp isn't it it's a two-edged sword and we know this text Hebrews 4 the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We know that in our own experience, don't we? Haven't you heard the Word of God and felt it slide right past everything that you would put up as a defense against it and get right to your very core? Boy, I have. But that's not the only time the sword comes. Later in the book of Revelation, there's a sword in Jesus' mouth. And with, it's with his very word. Jesus is not going to break a sweat doing away with his enemies. This is not the final battle scene in the Lord of the Rings. It is the sword from his mouth that strikes down his enemies and he will rule the nations. Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And finally, his face is radiating glory like the sun in full strength. His, he shines so brightly that Revelation 21 says the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem don't actually need any other light. The Lamb is their light. The glory of God is their light. He shines brightly. That's all that's needed. Now, when you add all of that together, all right? Just add all of that together. 
His hair is pure white. His searching eyes are fiery and they burn. And there's a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And he is strong and he is stable and nothing's going to move him. And his face radiates with the very glory of God because he is God. And you come into contact with that. Is it any surprise that John ends up on the ground? Who wouldn't? This glorious one struck fear into his heart. I wonder, when was the last time the vision of the glorious risen Lord Jesus made us tremble? When was the last time we were in awe of Him? When was the last time we couldn't even utter another word because the vision of the truth, of the reality of who He is, stopped our mouths? We read the Bible in such a pedestrian manner, don't we? As if we're just window shopping and we say, oh, that's nice, that's nice, that's nice. But the two-edged sword behind that window is meant to pierce. The last thing to know is not only does Jesus strike fear in the heart, Jesus soothes the fear of the heart. That's what's, in, that's what's glory. It's even more glorious. The one who strikes fear in the heart, whose very presence casts us down to the ground as though we're dead. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. Literally, Stop being afraid. Not avoid becoming afraid. Stop being afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. The same Jesus who strikes fear into the heart of John soothes John's fears. What a compassionate and kind and good Savior we have. He is the judge of the living and the dead, and nothing that we try to hide will ever be hidden from Him. And knowing that full well, He reaches out His nail-pierced hand to us and places it on our shoulder and says, Fear not. If I can paraphrase, he says, fear not, I'm God. And I am the promised one who has died and lives again. And death and Hades don't have you locked up anymore. I've got the keys. It's not in control of you. Those people are not in control of you. This society is not in control of you. It's not in control of when you breathe and when you don't breathe. I have the keys, Jesus says. It's interesting, the same exact thing happened at the transfiguration. Do you remember that? In Matthew chapter 17, you can go look at it. The glory of Jesus is revealed. The disciples fall down trembling. And Jesus lays his hand on them and says... Stop being afraid. Here is Jesus, fully and truly God, 
fully and truly human, the great high priest, the head of the church, the Davidic king who will rule forever, the one with the authority to judge all mankind, so glorious that John can't stay upright, and yet Jesus reaches down with the same hand that rules the church. It was his right hand. The same hand that rules the church and rules the world calms his heart. This is the Jesus we worship. This is the Jesus to whom we sing. This is the Jesus who saved us. This is the Jesus we preach. This is the Jesus we share with our friends. This is the Jesus who's promised us, promised to be with us to the end of the age. This is the Jesus who's coming soon. He's the glorious God-man. He's our mediator. He's with us. He strikes fear in our heart, and at the same time, He compassionately soothes the fear in our heart because He died for us and was raised again, and He holds the keys to death and Hades. And if He is for us, who can be against us? Huh? Got an answer for that one? There's no answer, because nobody can. Every church needs this glorious vision of Jesus to endure hardship faithfully. The writer of the Hebrews said it this way, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so closely clings so closely, and let us run with endurance... The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see what He's doing? He's saying, get a glorious vision of Jesus, and that will enable you to endure. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and faint-hearted. Dear friend, a glorious vision of Jesus will remind you and remind me that the hardship of this present time is playing out against the backdrop of eternity. And this book, if we just read it from start to finish, the book of Revelation, it would teach us this. Jesus wins, and we win with Him. And knowing that, will strengthen you to endure the hardship you face tomorrow at your office, in your family, with your friends. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you and we pray that you will give us grace to not lose our grip on this glorious vision of Jesus. Thank you for commanding John twice to write it down. That we could see it. That we could read it. Help us to not read the Bible or think of the risen Christ in a pedestrian way that lowers His glory, that reduces His glorious nature. We thank you that you have revealed Him to be the glorious God-man. We thank You that He is our High Priest, our Mediator. We thank You that He is with us now. We are thankful, Lord Jesus, that You are with us even now, speaking and commending and correcting and ruling and reigning through Your Word among us. Give us grace to be in awe that our hearts would tremble at the remembrance of this Jesus and give us grace to remember that the one who makes us tremble calms us because he is for us. We are thankful for that and we pray that this week, even the rest of this day, we will faithfully endure hardship, strengthened by this glorious vision of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.